Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. There's no room for angels in our heaven. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bob. Hello, I am Brian. Today's episode is Diamond Dogs, as the MGSV Roadshow takes us to Africa, which we are going to set to the musical stylings of David Bowie. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Merrill marries, we know the fate of Master Kazahira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Playing you in with a little David Bowie, Diamond Dogs, the track that gives Snake's new unit a call sign off the album of the same name. It would be an abdication of duty to not give David Bowie and the music of Metal Gear Solid 5 broadly its due here in our coverage. David Bowie has long been one of Hideo Kojima's favorite artists. Bowie's career as a musician started the same year Kojima was born, 1963, and he was making bangers until the day he died, two days after turning 69 in 2016. This also coincided with the release of his last album, Black Star, which absolutely rules, as does his music overall. Bowie is an artist I listened to casually for a long time, just as someone who grew up in a time where listening to FM radio was my main intake of new music, or in the sense, new-to-me music. He played regularly on the classic rock stations I listened to all through high school, but it was shortly after college that my bestie Brad really got into Bowie, and I followed suit thereafter. He was in Christopher Nolan's The Prestige around the same time as well, and this is when I was starting to think a little bit harder about Metal Gear Solid, which is peppered with Kojima's love for him. Peppered is one way of saying it. Another way is that he's the single biggest visual inspiration for the series. Um, yeah, I let's see. I'm trying to think of exactly... Because Bowie and Dylan have a similar thing to me where it's... Music I just sort of casually listened to in the background. I'm trying to remember exactly when I like flipped the switch. It would have had to have been <clears throat> after I really started watching the Venture Brothers, which uh, I would have started watching in 2006-ish. No, I would say 2006, 2007 was right around then. Well, it started in 03, and I think I'd watched it, but I, I a lot of Adult Swim stuff you just sort of see, and then you mm -hmm. watch later. Uh... I mean, definitely by the time I was in college, Bowie was a mainstay, and that would have been 2008. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So somewhere in there I started and then it just sort of kind of every few months I'd listen to stuff I hadn't heard and then kind of just just a slow, it was never like a big, I don't think I ever had like, I've listened to every David Bowie album in the last five days sort of thing. I don't think you can do that really with any artist that has more than like four albums. Um, Yeah, I never owned a Bowie album just just because it was also I was getting into him at a time where buying albums was just not a common thing anymore. Yeah, I mean, Um, that's about when I stopped. I I know my mother had changes, so I think I had that. mm -hmm. But like, yeah, because I'm trying to think the last album I may have bought may have been 808s and Heartbreak. Yeah, no, that was actually that or like the killers. Sam's Town is probably like I may have. I think I did buy uh, his next one. I think I did buy the well, uh, not what, what's the my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. That one. Yeah, that's that might that might be the last album I ever, I've ever bought. Um, definitely by the early 2010s. So yeah, I mean, it's around then. And then I think after he died, I kind of went even deeper. Mm-hmm. That spring, I I went in, I went in and like really got into the stuff I'd never listened to. I decided sometime that year that Low was my favorite Bowie album. Um, That's a good one. And yeah, and you know, uh, just kind of been a mains. Like, I don't know. I've always had most of my, I I say adult life, because 2006, I was uh, 15 or 16, uh, turning 17. So like, yeah, I mean, since I've been driving a car, I've had Bowie playing in that car, I guess is the best way to say it. Mm Mm-hmm. From the early MSX days, Solid Snake had David Bowie DNA in his design, which would also make its way to Raiden in MGS2, down to the little hair poof he has aping some of Bowie's big hair looks. MGS3 had many overt references to Bowie, from Zero's Major Tom moniker and the Fury aping Space Oddity in his whole deal. That song, along with Ashes to Ashes, were considered for the end credit song as well. The Bowie is off the charts in MGSV, however. The song Diamond Dogs, which is again the name of this iteration of Snake's Army Without a Country, is a clockwork orange-esque depiction of a dystopian Manhattan where a group of young boys known as Diamond Dogs prey on the unsuspecting street-level terrorists. Their leader is known as Halloween Jack, which you can literally describe Venom as a costume of Jack, aka Naked Snake, aka Big Boss. Jack gives them purpose and meaning, even if they are just sowing more anarchy than peace. The song even speaks of 10-inch stumps, evocative of the phantom limbs all over this game, dressed like a priest, which is the role Venom Snake takes at the end of his Shining Lights, Even in Death eulogy. And I want to say that this stuff, some of this stuff may sound like a stretch, but it's also like almost identically stuff that Kojima tweets about. (laughs) He loves loves making sure people know what his influences are. So a lot of like I wanted to say this a while ago. A lot of the stuff that you say may sound like a stretch, but it, it a lot of it is straight up just like Kojima tweeted that out, so you know it's real. Yeah, I, I love I love that about him. I love that. Uh, here are all my influences. I love anyone who makes art like that. Here's everything I like. Here it is, and just holding it out for you. A lot of this is stuff I just think about when I get stoned, though. So I I haven't always seen. But I mean, but that sound that straight up sounds like a tweet that he would make. Mm-hmm. No, that's fair. That's highest honor, actually. (laughs) But for as much as the topic of the track is bleak, the song itself is upbeat, a standard blues rock song in A major that sounds more like the Rolling Stones than Bowie's oeuvre, which on the meta level just works wonderfully for what this game is really about. A broken world of snakes and metal gears, of nukes and biological warfare, 
but to be Halloween Jack is a rip-roaring good time. As the opening of the song goes, this ain't rock and roll, it's genocide. Two, the song Diamond Dogs is on the album Diamond Dogs, which is a mashup of several other projects Bowie was working on, including trying to adapt George Orwell's 1984, through or- though Orwell's widow refused him the rights. On the second side of the Diamond Dogs cassette tape, and I really need you to envision Venom Snake turning over the tape like we see at the end of this game, is a track literally called 1984. Another song there, We Are the Dead, is about the love between Winston and Julia from that novel. And there's also a song called Big Brother, which, duh, Big Boss. We've been talking a lot about 1984 as we go through our coverage. From Double Speaks, Hidden Truths, War is Peace, Big Boss is Watching You, and now here's Bowie's Diamond Dogs. And much like V for Vendetta we discussed a few episodes back, we have Kojima working in not only the core text of 1984 into this game, but media downstream from it. Media that picked up the meme of 1984 and passed it down to the next generation, like Bowie's Diamond Dogs album. That may be the best uh, way to describe what I was just talking about. Is is I'd say Kojima and and Remedy are the only two video game like auteurs or creators, the creative forces that seem to understand or embrace that idea that that no piece of art exists in a vacuum like they all affect each other and they all kind of blend together and make this weird soup i really appreciate that i really i really love any art that kind of acknowledges that i've seen hideki also say something very similar to that effect too yeah it seems to be it's something that happens a lot i mean comic books are lousy with it i would say Mm -hmm. i totally agree with that but like video games seem to all pretend that for the most part seem to pretend that they all like this is its own thing that has no, it's never, I guess Rockstar does it too, but Rockstar is very, um, they get weirdly defensive about it. Uh, Mass Effect is a good example of, uh, it does not, and I don't know if it does it, it, it acknowledges this, but it's sort of a, a, just a melding of every single sci-fi property from like this early seventies to like TNG. It's like, everything's here. This is, this is it. This is the ultimate sci-fi property. Um, and I, I just like that. I enjoy that kind of art. It's, it's contextually, it only makes sense in our world, I guess is what I'm saying. But anyways, um, I, I like Diamond Dogs, the album. It's good. I don't know if I love it. I love Sweet Thing. That's one of my favorite Bowie songs, especially from this era. And I mean, Rebel Rebel is a great song, but I feel like I've heard it too much at this point. It's kind of, it's one of those, it's hard to really envision being part of an album. You're just like, oh, that's single. Which happens sometimes with Bowie. Sometimes I forget that like Heroes is on an album. <laughs> it wasn't just released to the world. Um, that that's a thing that happens with certain artists when they get to a level of ubiquity. Like it's sometimes it's strange if you just listen to like Let It Be the album and be like, oh yeah, it's on this album. Um, I don't know. I don't know how much to say about. It. I feel like you kind of described the album already. It's it's sort of in between like a lot of. A lot of his mid '70s stuff is in between personalities, like more mm-hmm. more so than later Bowie. Um, but you know, as far as pre station to station stuff goes, it's up there. I like Young Americans a lot. Uh, what's the? Uh, I mean, Diamond Dogs, like we said. I don't like pinups. <laughs> I was just looking. Yeah, Aladdin Sane's good. Like I don't know. It's it's sort of in that middle, in between Ziggy and and Thin White Duke. There's just kind of. I don't want to say personality list because that's you could never say that about a David Bowie 
album, but it sort of doesn't have that unifying thing. I feel like maybe if he'd gotten the race in 1984, it would have, but you know. We already had one serving of The Man Who Sold the World, but why not Second Breakfast? We title our fifth V episode after that Bowie song and hit you with the midge or cover that the game plays during V's Awakening. But even the Bowie version is a mimetic copy in its own way, a phantom of the 1899 poem Antigonish by William Hughes Mearns. The poem is also known as The Little Man Who Wasn't There and starts like this. Yesterday, upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. When I came home last night at three, the man was waiting there for me. But when I looked around the hall, I couldn't see him there at all. Compared to the opening of Bowie's song, we passed upon the stair. We spoke of was and when, although I wasn't there. He said I was his friend, which came as a surprise. I spoke into his eyes. I thought you died alone a long, long time ago. Very similar, especially speaking of stairs and what isn't there. The man who wasn't there in MGSV is Big Boss himself. He's barely present aside from the hospital scenario. But at the same time, he's everywhere. Big Boss is watching you is plastered all over Mother Base, and the weight of his legacy and importance hang over the very narrative. The song at its core is about identity, about self-discovery, but also self-delusion. Who knows? Not me. I never lost control. Venom Snake is the obvious counterpart to Big Boss, the man who isn't there. When he's face-to-face with the man who sold the world, it is Big Boss's face staring back at him in the mirror. And indeed, Big Boss sold his entire world to Venom Snake and Diamond Dogs. His name, his image, his deeds, his unit, his friends, Kaz and Ocelot, he sold them all to this imposter, or more accurately perhaps, he sold the world on this phantom being Big Boss so he could be free of the chains of his own identity. The phrase we tend to use when someone gives up the core of what defined them for less than noble reasons is selling out. And of course, I wonder if Kojima viewed himself as the man who sold the world, someone who sold out on his desires to keep making new stories and games, instead always falling back on the lucrative choice of forwarding his Metal Gear saga. And speaking of meta-interpretations, I think a lot about being face-to-face with someone you thought died alone a long, long time ago. That could be the player being confronted with the big boss of 1987's Metal Gear for MSX, that quote-unquote big boss who died at the end of the game, but somehow returned after the game's credits. We are face-to-face with that part of the canon, with that double of big boss, who was ancient history in Metal Gear terms. Yeah, not even like prehistory at this point. Uh, <laughs> there was, what was he? I wrote a thing in 2015, 2016. I'm trying to remember what the premise of it was. I it, I feel bad now. I wrote it for Fellowship of the Screen, actually. And uh, Oh, yeah, I wrote there. Friend of the show. 
I think I brought in that specific interpretation of like that song is too important to the narrative of the game to not like talk about. And it's one of my five or six favorite Bowie songs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That idea that that big boss is the man who wasn't there seems pretty locked in. Like I don't really know how else to dispute that, and I don't know if I want to dispute that. But I love um, I love the idea of that being malleable, like you being able to change that song with any of the other songs. Mm-hmm. So instead of this like deep introspective existential song with like deep synths, you just like I don't know, play Man Eater or something. And man, the, uh, actually, the man who's being eaten is is Venom Snake, and Big Boss is the man eater. Like just that idea. But I um, it's a great song. You know, it's a great song because it has more than one great cover. I think there's a third one too. Because there's a, the Nirvana cover and with the Midger cover. The Nirvana cover is an all timer. And honestly, I, I'm not like a huge Nirvana fan, and that's probably one of my favorite Nirvana songs. Just their cover of it. Yeah, it's more just I I've listened I've heard Nirvana a lot. I like them fine. Mm-hmm. I probably liked Foo Fighters more when I was into that music, which I still am, I guess. But I think that's more just because I, I enjoy Dave Grohl's idiosyncratic drumming. I was listening to Queens of the Stone Age the other day. It's fun. Oh, he's only on the two albums, but they're both great. Well, yeah, I was listening to that first one. Of course you were, as as are Ed should all people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my, that's probably the best album of the 2000s. Certainly the best rock album of the 2000s. Anyways, anyways, David Bowie. He probably would have liked this, right? Oh, yeah, I think he would. <laughs> Maybe he heard about it. Maybe he heard about it before he died. I know he heard about the Flight of the Concords episode. He wanted to be on it. That was the original idea. But he uh, there was a scheduling conflict. So they were just like, let's just have Jermaine do it. <laughs> which is which also is, fine. Which is funnier. Like, I think it's, it is a funnier image of like a guy who doesn't look anything like David Bowie. Just being like, I love David Bowie. Yeah, yeah I know. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Great. Terrific song. Thematically appropriate, more thematically appropriate than I think any of the other songs that that's really the thing for this game is uh, uh, sure is just all the music that Hideo likes more so than any other game he's made, which I I guess is you can't have Harry Gregson Williams music because of, you know, the probable plagiarism accusations and just put in a bunch of songs you like. Do the do the wrestler thing and just license music instead of making up worse music. Yeah, before we leave Bowie for the day, I would be remiss to not point out that Bowie himself is a phantom in MGSV. <laughs> His music doesn't actually appear at all. The man who sold the world we have in this game is the major cover, and Diamond Dogs isn't a song, period. Like Big Boss himself, David Bowie hangs over the entire narrative, almost a structural absence that still helps define the characters and themes of this game. While we're doing music this episode, there's a lot of great licensed music that Brian was alluding to that you can collect off of stereos playing at various encampments and outposts. 
This is an addition to songs from this game as well as the Metal Gear Saga writ large. A quick rundown of these tracks include Take On Me by AHA, Only Time Will Tell by Asia, Rebel Yell by Billy Idol, Friday I'm In Love by The Cure, You Spin Me Around by Dead or Alive, Final Countdown by Europe, Maneater by Hall & Oates, Quiet Life by Japan, Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division, Too Shy by Kajagugu, Kids in America by Kim Wilde, which I played you in with. It's one of my favorite songs. Gloria by Laura Branigan. The Man Who Sold the World by Major Again. True by Spando Belay. She Blinded Me with Science by Thomas Dolby. And Dancing with Tears in My Eyes by Ultravox. I listen to these songs quite a lot now. There are Spotify playlists that collect these songs as well as other actual Metal Gear themes from previous games. So it makes for some good listening. And while some of these songs came out after 1984, the starting point for Venom Snake, there's a strong argument that the storyline and some of these missions take place all the way up to the Outer Heaven Uprising of Metal Gear 1 set in 1995, which could make all of them fit or not be as anachronistic as they may seem. The Cure, Take On Me, and Kids in America are probably my favorite tracks as mentioned. How about you, Brian? Well, I have, I mean, I'm a big Hall Notes fan personally which is a little bit doesn't not entirely uh, congruous with the rest of this music which is straight up just like either like late uh new wave or like early proto like grunge punk stuff i mean but he's uh i i would have bet a thousand dollars or more if you told me before this game came out that it was going to have a bunch of licensed songs from the 80s i would have bet a significant amount of money that Level Terrace Apart would be on it because I know Joy Division is his, is Kojima's favorite band. And I would have been mm-hmm, correct. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about it all the time, and that's a great choice. That's a great band, and it fits him. It's just he's of that age and dresses the way he does that it's pretty obvious that Joy Division is a band he loves and New Order. He's yeah. a big New Order fan, as you as you would be. I have the collected essays of Kojima, and one of the chapters is about Joy Division. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talks about the Walkman a lot with that, specifically listening yeah. to it on his Walkman. Uh, I mean, I have I have a lot of personal uh, affection for the Final Countdown, but not necessarily because of that band or that song, just because that was Brian Danielson's music in Ring of Honor in the two thousands. <laughs> well, it was his last music. It's yeah, it's it's a good. I mean, it's he put it's a, a good stadium song. Like I think of it with sporting yeah. events and stuff. He put an Ultravox song on this. It's very funny. It's just funny to me. That's it's very on brand and perfect for him to do to put this music on, but it's, it's a good soundtrack. Like it's they, more, more importantly, most of these songs are very good songs to have your helicopter fly into. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was, I went with cheap mind with me with science for a long time. Cause it was just kind of the funniest song to imagine a helicopter, like f- coming in, firing machine guns at people to mm-hmm. shooting missiles and shit. That's a very comical song to do that to. Yeah, and like you said, a lot of these songs do have stuff to do with the story or you can put a reading on it. And like literally what the Metal Gear Solid series is, is kind of blinding the player with science as it explains the like stupidest little things happening. Little babies can float because of nano machines and all this kind of stuff. No, it's great. Um, I think it's really great. That song's in Breaking Bad also. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. It was uh, Todd's ringtone for a while, which is a great runner in that show. Mm-hmm. Todd, what a great character. Oh, we love him. He's so good and likable. Yeah.
So, based on Huey's intel, Snake and Diamond Dogs now turn to the Angola Zaire border region in Central Africa in search of this weapon to surpass Metal Gear. The first directive is some environmental terrorism. Destroy the Mafinda oil field, which is currently polluting the drinking water for nearby villages. The oil field had just been taken by UNITA, the Portuguese acronym for the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, a U.S. and South African-backed proxy fighting against the MPLA, the popular movement for the liberation of Angola, which uh, the MPLA was backed by the Soviets at this time. UNITA, the U.S.-backed group, had recently seen an infusion of military tech, including Walker Gears. Kaz and Snake are pretty sure the seller of the Walker Gears, SANER, or South African Natural Resources, is a front for Cypher. Saner has also been selling Walker Gears to the various PMCs working out of this region, such as the Contract Forces of Africa, or CFA. The other big takeaway from these early missions in Africa is eerily similar to what was happening with the Hamid and Soviets in Afghanistan, entire villages and peoples being wiped out without, without what appears to be bloodshed. In turning off the oil pump at Mafinda, Snake discovers bodies hidden in the oil, with their lungs popping up through their skin in fucked up fashion. We are slowly moving towards the reveal of the vocal cord parasites. That primes us for the set of Africa missions we are going to play today. We'll run through these missions really quickly, and Brian, just jump in if you have anything to say about them. The first one is that initial mission, Pitch Dark, uh, which is the oil field mission described above. Like I said, it's environmental activism. You are hired by an NGO to destroy the oil field so it stops polluting the nearby thing. It is one of the missions that has like an ASAP deployment. You don't pick like 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. It just kind of dumps you in wherever. And it has a little bit of a cutscene when you come in, being the first mission in Africa. Um, you get off the chopper and you land in mud. You can see your footprints in it. Um, it's kind of setting you up that this is going to be a different environment to work through. Uh, and you basically start this mission working through a little village that's being used as a military outpost. There's like a old ferry that's like crashed into the water side. Mm -hmm. There's a couple huts. There's a couple military camps that kind of uh, surround the village. Um, there's child soldiers training here as well, which is an important thing to note. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but eventually you work your way through the map and you find yourself in the oil field, which is kind of just like a big base. It's fenced in a lot of watchtowers, a lot of troops around, and you have to destroy the big oil tank. It's like a big red tank that's like over the water a little bit. And then you have to work your way into the office and turn off the um, like oil filter or something like that. Um, so it's like dual objectives. And once you blow the tank, um, that kind of sets off the big alarm. Uh, so like a CFA unit will uh, close in on you with walker gears and try to cut off your exit from the base. So um, pretty, pretty intense mission, not intense, but it's like there's a lot going on with this mission. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on it? I love this is the mission that made me think about this. And I thought about it for the rest of my time playing this game. Was the um, how well this is going to be a slight tangent, surprisingly, uh, <laughs> how well this game in particular figured out scope for a video game? Because I, I talk about this a lot, specifically with Halo. I think it's a thing that Halo is the greatest at. But a lot of games have are big scale games, like just huge areas. I think specifically of like Assassin's Creed games, which are these big, huge maps. But they don't They're And part of this is because those games are trying to. Uh, recreate historical places so they, they have to be that a little more restricted 
But you have these big areas, but they're not, they don't feel connected. They just feel like this is one area, then you go to the next area, then you go to the next area. Like through a little loading area, you know, like a little uh, canyon or something. And then there's another big area, that, that, that kind of thing. It doesn't feel like, you never really feel like you get like a sense of where you are in this gigantic area. And later in Africa, but, but this mission is the first one when you come up, when you come up to the, like where the tank is and you just get like this nice broad view of the whole space. I really felt like I understood get just getting that in your brain lets you kind of understand where you are, no matter where you go in that area, you, you, you have some, you know, where you are for the most part. And it's, it's really, I guess it's not that easy to do it. It seems like it is. Cause I think about this all the time with like, with like Halo games where like one person will be literally, I mean, hundreds of meters away from the other person, but you can kind of just always figure out where the other person is just sort of by knowing what they're doing. I don't know how to describe that. Part of that is playing those games and split screen that all, you know, also helps you know where someone is, but like, uh, I think specifically in this game that the example that really stands out to me is, and I forget which mission exactly it is because I don't think I played through it again. Maybe I did. But when you first come down off the mountain and you can just see the entire plane, you can see the airport on one side, you can mm -hmm. see some of the villages. It's just a great, I love any game that, that gives you the vantage points, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. To sort of. Without that, not like not like the Breath of the Wild style, like getting up on a tower and getting the map filled in. I mean, like in your brain, letting you sort of just visualize where you are and understand it. That's why I love any game that gives you real directions. Any game that has street signs and addresses or has like Breath of the Wild has landmarks that people will tell you, just go to this landmark. They won't give you a, a waypoint to follow. They'll just give you mm -hmm. like... It's almost like a little test of like how well have you been internalizing this map that we've made. I love that. I mean, the Hitman games I think are are best played by any by like people who can kind of visualize what the map looks like and where what connects to what, where this goes, because those are big areas that are also that feel connected. They feel like real places. And yeah, I think I think Phantom Pain is is I realized while I was playing through the first few Africa missions that this was a this is a game that is very very I guess you don't really notice it as much in Afghanistan because it's just kind of crags and mountains and everything sort of not split up but it's all base camps it's not yeah. or it's all like um, outposts and then these like kind of hut villages so like you can get your lay but all the land looks the same whereas there's a yeah. little bit more yeah. land diversity and density here that helps you pick out where you are and just being any, any just give me a big mountain to go on top of and just look out at everything so i can figure out what's where i don't have to use a map i don't have to i love that and that sense of scope is really 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 powerful and it wasn't necessary i mean the seeing the oil field and all that was part of it but it's yeah the first few missions in, in Africa where you're figuring out like where everything are, I had such a great time with them. Mm -hmm. Just for that, almost for that reason alone, I love that stuff in games. This mission also has a total stealth version after you defeat Sahelanthropus, and it's basically you have to beat it without being seen at all, mm -hmm. or um, and you get no reflex mode, so you basically just have to do a perfect stealth. One thing I do... Um, to uh, beat this, especially on the total stealth, is I go in and turn off the like pump in the office room like first, 
Um, and then I actually pull myself out of the base. And then instead of like planting C4 on the tank, which I would do just like in a normal playthrough, I just use like a rocket launcher, missile launcher and destroy the tank from afar. Um, that way, the walker gears that close in on the base after you blow it don't, um, you know, you have to avoid them and they're harder to get out because there's only two ways out of like the base or the oil mm -hmm. field specifically. And they kind of close those exits off. So you have to be kind of sneaky to get around them. This is a way that you can kind of get outside of their perimeter before they even show up. Not nothing wrong with it. Yeah. The next mission is Lingua Franca, which is pretty straightforward. It's basically you're trying to track down like the, what's it called? The supply chain of the Walker gears being purchased by CFA. So essentially you're following a translator from a nearby outpost to um, his meeting with the target. You've had similar missions in Afghanistan. There isn't that much to it. The next one is a mission I kind of like. It's uh, the Footprints of Phantoms. And this time you are clients for the MPLA, our uh, Kami comrades. So yay. Um, and basically, once again, you're trying to trace Walker Gears to Cypher. Um, but here you actually have to either destroy or extract four Walker Gears that are up on a hill on this little like encampment with a giant rock over it. Um, and this is, I just think, a fun mission because it's there's a lot of verticality to this little base. Um, and you need to go in and, you know, either extract the Walker gears with Fulton. Um, you can extract three of them and then ride one out if you want to. Um, or you can just kind of blow them all up with C4. Either which way, there's a lot to do. There's also a specialist here because there's a couple prisoners in the camp mm -hmm. um, that you can get. And I think he's a trap specialist. Um, so you can do like kind of inventive traps like active stun decoys and stuff like that. You can start building those. This mission also has a total stealth version. Again, just means you can't be caught at all. Um, it's a lot of fun. I like these total stealth missions, which force you to be completely incognito. Um, but after this mission, you'd get a visit quiet side mission. And this is kind of where you start getting some information about how quiet breathes through her skin. Um, Asla compares her to the end because, you know, they were buddies back in Operation Snake Eater. And this is also where quiet starts becoming a deployable buddy for Snake. The next mission is Trader's Caravan, which you want to, uh, the mission is essentially to extract a truck. It has a route that is going to go uh, starting from the airport through several outposts and bases. Um, and in the truck afterwards, you'll find out that there was Malachite Kuiper ore and some yellow cake in it, which plays into some of the nuclear stuff we'll get into a little bit later. But um, you can approach the truck at any point before it even starts the route. But what you really want to do or what the optional objectives are is to let the truck go through to each base camp. At each point, the truck driver will get out and have a conversation um, with someone at whatever camp they're stopping at. And each of those conversations has a little bit of skull building, whether it's big boss has been sighted in Africa, skull faces up to something. Have you ever heard of the devil's house, which might <laughs> be where... Um, we're going in a later mission, all kind of stuff like that, that you probably don't need on subsequent playthroughs. But if you really want to a get all the objectives and b like just learn more about what's going on, a lot of the world building is tailing the truck for a while and overhearing all those conversations. But the real point or the real thing is once you actually approach the truck for extraction, uh, four members of the skulls unit will jump out of the back and your goal is still you just have to extract the truck. So if you can like get around them and Fulton the truck out and then run away, that's viable. Um, if you want to hop in the trunk, you can try to drive away. Although 
Um, the skulls will fire on the truck, and if you, the truck blows, that is a mission fail. Um, or you can try and just take on the skulls, you know, in battle, uh, whether stealthily or in open combat. Again, you can't blow up the truck. So you want to talk about fighting the skulls here, Brian? Good. Shoot gun. That's what I did here. Yeah, I definitely... I remember being tricked by this one, which was kind of silly looking back. I'm trying to remember if I... I think I did... I Two or three times I I failed on this originally. Maybe three. I think this may have been... Except for Sahelanthropus, I think this was the single most... Not hardest. I wouldn't say it's hard. The, the one that just got me the most. Like, I just had to retry the most. Which is not something... I wouldn't say this is an easy game. I would say... Because... I don't know. It requires a lot of patience to play, like, effectively. But I would say that, um, that like, it's not as difficult. There's not as many bottlenecks as other Metal Gear games. Like, there are some parts in other Metal Gear games where if you're not good, if you don't understand the mechanics well, you, you may not get past it. Like, uh, I mean, the... Well, the, the the entire last, uh, I mean, not just the Cyber Wolf fight, but like the entire last like four hours of the first game, mm-hmm. uh, is is much more difficult than a lot of the rest of it. I know some people have problems with the Hind D battle. I never did. Uh, the Vamp fight in two is one. Vamp fight in two is pretty di- or difficult for what it is. Yeah, it's- the the Metal Gear fights in the, the plural in two. Every almost every boss fight in three. I guess not. I mean, I the the pain is like a joke. I think the Fury, like the Fury gets pretty hard. The Fury is a big one. And then they start putting time limits with Vogan and the boss. So it's not just yeah. the end for different reasons. Like if you, if you are not comfortable with stealth with stealth and it's going to be a difficult fight. Mm-hmm. And you can't just like kind of sit where you want. Cause if yeah. the end sneaks up on you, it just starts the whole thing over again. Yep. So yeah. And I love, but the, this is, I think this may be the only real one in this game, at least for me, that's the airport also but the the airport one is uh which we'll get to i think next time um i did want to highlight that this is the armor unit which i Mm -hmm. mentioned that's i think why yeah the armor unit has a health bar just like all the other skulls but when they like decide to use their armor which is like a thing that they turn on and off during the battle it basically gives them a full second life bar that's just their armor and you have to whittle that all the way down to zero before you can start taking life off of them again. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's one of those things where you kind of have to keep up like the like carnage. You have to keep shooting them because if you give them any time or if you run away to heal or Fulton supply or something uh, or supply drop rather, then that gives them time to either invoke their armor and then you're basically have to take down yet another full health bar to take them down. Yeah. Uh, I do want to mention there is... Um, I was having trouble beating this on the extreme version, which is, again, a post-Sahelanthropist thing where it's just this mission but a million times harder. Um, I had trouble beating it with all the objectives the first time through, um, so I did get a little help and I found a little bit of a cheese. Um, That is where um, if you get the skulls to come out, but you don't necessarily, like, you don't allow yourself to be seen, so they're still kind of in search mode um, and you're not in open combat, you can use your your infinite supply of magazines, like the magazines that go into a gun, not like the Playboys that you also <laughs> can do in this game. Um, and you can throw those so you can kind of lure all the four into like one like kind of area. And then once they're all kind of uh, jumbled together, you can start throwing sleep grenades and the sleep grenades will eventually take them out in full. 
Um, you have to use like your entire supply. I think you get eight. Uh, but if you do that, they will go out. And the thing with the armor unit is they don't have any shielding for like the stun or like the stamina bar, um, as opposed to their life bar. So, um, it's a fun way to kind of cheese it and it's a way to do it in perfect stealth, which is kind of fun too. Hitman style. Mm -hmm. Throwing items to distract enemies to a certain location is a Hitman thing now. It's not a really good thing anymore, sorry. Uh, the next mission is rescue the intel agents, which are basically, you have to save two of your own agents who were undercover with the CFA but got outed. Um, and then it's not really much, you just have to get them out of an outpost, but one of the agents is too injured to be Fulton, so you just have to be able to uh, take him back to your helicopter. Um, I think on, like... If you come back to this mission after you have the black hole, Fulton, you can extract him with that. Um, it's mostly the balloon ride that'll kill him. The next mission, Blood Runs Deep, is a fairly important mission. This introduces the Mbele and Buta, the two ethnic groups in the region, who were once considered the same people, but had been feuding since World War I. Uh, the European colonizers would subsequently grant power to the Buta tribe, who in turn subjugated the Mbele, they, in turn, began an armed resistance, which included child soldiers. So this contract comes from the Mbele general, who wants Snake to infiltrate the Kunganga mine and eliminate some of his soldiers who were captured before they can reveal any critical information. When Snake finds them, he realizes they are children and stages a fake execution before extracting the kids. So this is a big open level. First, you have to work your way through a kind of fenced-off base, where in that one base, you have to assassinate a guy or extract a guy who is on the way to the mine. Um, and then after that, you have a little bit of open map to work through. And then you basically come upon the mine, which is a big open basin. There's a lot of vantage points, a lot of guards, a lot of like things to extract, like gun placements and Fultons. Um, and then eventually you work your way into the back of the mine. And in the tunnel, you'll find the kids who are caged um, that you basically have to extract. Uh, the first time through the mission, you have to basically lead the children uh, through um, the caves and out the back and through a little open map again and lead them to the yeah. extraction point. Like you can't uh, Fulton them out. But later on, when you develop a the child Fulton uh, technique and then the black hole, of course, then you can just basically Fulton these kids right out of their cage once uh, once you found them. This uh, that big marsh area you go through is one of my favorite areas in the game. Just it looks so much different than everything else. And I think it was after this mission that I was coming back the other way and I was going uh, down the little off. I came across the little plateau and was looking out over the plains because I, I remember distinctly just listening to music in game and just sort of looking at stuff. And I, I think it was right after this when I, I just left. I didn't actually go home. I just sort of walked around for a bit and explored. Yeah, this is this is a highlight mission of the whole game for me. It's one of the best in the game. Yeah, the back half, like I said, the first time through is kind of an escort mission mm -hmm. um, where you're basically going to be kind of clearing the path or just trying to work around the uh, people that are patrolling the swamp that you were talking about. Um, one of the kids you have to throw on your back because he's too injured to walk. Um, so that limits you to whatever pistol you basically have for the game. Um, or for the mission, rather. Um, and then the other four kids will follow you along. And you can command him the same way you command, like, D-Horse or D-Dog with the, what's it called, L1. You know, hold it down, and it gives you options to tell the kids mm -hmm. to move, to stay, um, to follow you, whatever it is. Maybe saving four kids makes up for, for Chico, but maybe it doesn't. The next mission is on the trail, 
which you get into, uh, which is basically you overhear a deterrence discussion with a major, and they're talking about some old man who will reveal himself to be Code Togger. Basically, your whole point is to uh, assassinate or extract the two targets. Um, this is also where you start hearing about members of the con contract forces of Africa being infected with an unknown disease. Uh, you kind of know where this is all going. Back at Mother Base, Huey will pro also propose the Battle Gear, a crab-like tank based on Metal Gear tech as well as Soviet tech, which presumably can be traced to the Shagohod in design. Huey's idea was basically an anti-Metal Gear, something to take on the Walker Gears and other bipedal weapons that Skullface is using. I wanted to highlight this because Kojima intended for the Battle Gear to be part of the gameplay, probably more likely as your vehicle than a buddy like D-Walker. But this would end up being cut, but they couldn't because they couldn't find the right balance with it in the actual gameplay. It was scrapped in that capacity, though in story it is completed and can be used for your combat team deployments. This is um the little walking guy, the little four-legged guy, or the four the tires that treads that can turn into feet somehow. Uh, yeah, I like it. It's um, trying to think of how to describe. It's always kind of silly to me when people are like, "We're gonna fight this Metal Gear with a guy that shoots a, a tank." So like a normal tank. <laughs> so that's it's nice to have like a little like hybrid thing to the I don't know, you never since you never get to use it, it's hard to really say how it would really yeah. work. But you know, at least they put it in the ops. I almost forgot about that, that it is in the, the ops you can do. Because it's not something that'll come up as you're replaying the game because yeah. it's just kind of like an extra cutscene. So I had to actually kind of keep this up like I was going through a plot line of Metal Gear Solid B. I was like, oh yeah, this is here. Um, it's also like um, kind of like how they were talking about how the vocal cord parasites are a weapon to suppress Metal Gear. Like Metal Gear Ray was uh, viewed as like an anti-Metal Gear Metal Gear. Um, so mm. it's fun to see like kind of those ideas in their earliest iterations taking seed here. Which is funny because it doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. The one time we see Metal Gear Ray fight another the Metal Gear, it loses. Our next mission is Voices where you have to rescue a child soldier commander named Shabani from the Devil's House, an industrial zone uh, on the Angola-Zaire border. This is another fairly long mission with a set route and landing zone. You'll work through several enemy fortifications, including a misty valley that gives you a false skulls attack pretense. There's a Heart of Darkness Apocalypse Now vibe to these African settings as you go deeper and deeper into the jungle and into the narrative. We'll circle back to chat more about that literary work in an upcoming episode as well. Eventually, after passing through a tunnel, you will find the Devil's House on a Cliff, an industrial area with lots of water towers and tanks, various piping and wires, and lots of oil barrels. Oh, and bloodstains. When Snake enters the abandoned factory, blood streaks can be seen on the floor too, not unlike in the Cypress Hospital. Dead or dying people have been dragged through here. Snake finds a makeshift hospital ward with lots of dead bodies showing the same exposed lungs from the corpses in the oil field. They also have headphones running from nearby stereos into slits in their necks, not unlike the pair running into Chico's chest in his cage in Ground Zeroes. At the end of the ward, Snake finds Shabani, but Shabani's death rattle alerts Skullface, who had appeared in the next room over. Burn with the rest of them. Skullface calls Mantis, who in turn summons the man on fire. 
The man on fire has Snake dead to rights, even beginning to choke him to death, but he hesitates for a moment. Apparently, Mantis took a moment to mercy kill Shabani, which you can see Shabani's necklace on Mantis when he does this, which gives Snake a chance to break free from the man on fire. Kaz has some simple advice for you. Get the fuck out of there! We have a boss battle to discuss, but first, let's do back-to-back Man on Fire and Mantis breakdowns, since they go hand-in-hand in this game. So the Man on Fire, played by David Fouquet, let's start with him, who we may recall from such roles as Colonel Volgan in Metal Gear Solid 3. We aren't going to do a full Volgan analysis again. I recommend flipping back to our 18th episode, A Host of Sorrows, back from when we covered Snake Eater. Setting aside the on-fire portion for now, Volgan has a lot of the same visual design from his debut in Metal Gear Solid 3. He has the same bandolier of bullets and power suit he wore when facing off against Snake and Snake, and even bullets between his knuckles. In his first appearance at Cyprus, he wears a long coat we asso- that we associate with Volgan from before he burns it off in that initial MGS3 boss battle. They had experimented with new or different outfitting for Volgan, but none stuck and the classic MGS3 aesthetic won out. New to his look are the crown of bullets or shrapnel in his head, not unlike Venom Snake. Crown might be a generous read. Horns like the devil also fit especially with the fiery visage. He has no visible mouth nor says any words in this game. He just grunts and roars, which is in line with some of the other themes in this game about language and silence. And well, the fire is obviously a new look, I gotta say, it's a good look. I mentioned his Sebastian Shaw routine a few episodes back, but he's also very much the Human Torch. Johnny Storm or Jim Hammond, take your pick. Would you say that he um is a crown of shit upon his liar's head? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think I think I understand why. It would have been probably con- confusing, like lore wise, as to how he was able to change clothes. And it just look it looks good. It looks it looks like a preview of an MBS three remake, which I'm always a, a fan of, or just like a HDification, I guess. Um, I don't know. I don't really know what you really could have changed if you were going to have it be Volgan and not just like. I guess he could have just been entirely made of fire, just like a complete entity, but like kind of naked or something, right? No, I just like you never see anything. But I think that I think the the man. I think it makes him. It makes him feel more like some sort of out of control experiment than just like a, a, a elemental being of revenge. Um, I'm not sure. I think you go either way with that, but I like the design overall. It, it looks nice. Yeah. He's a, he's a Frankenstein character. Yeah. Yeah. Or Frankenstein's monster, whatever. But like, that's exactly what, no, both <laughs> what they're trying to do with him. So like, it's good that he's recognizably something instead of like a demon of the ancient world kind of thing. Now, does does he have wings, though? That's the big... It's not a Balrog. <laughs> He's a Balrog. That that debate. Although that is a fun reading. That debate has been confounding me. Big Boss was saying, you shall not pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need that edit. In a bit of a retcon, Volgan wasn't killed at the end of Operation Snake Eater, but went comatose after being struck by lightning to end his battle with Snake. How he survived was confounding to scientists, but his electricity or energy powers are likely the cause. They further kept him alive so they could study and experiment on him. While comatose, Volgan had a festering lust for revenge on Naked Snake, which grew over the 19 and a half years between Operation Snake Eater and the Phantom Pain. 
Volgan woke up the same day as Venom Snake in February 1984, burning down the entire facility he was being held. This is what V heard on the radio from his hospital bed. He would meet Mantis, who would help him further reanimate and reinvigorate. His awakening and desire to exact vengeance on Naked Snake influenced the decision to wake Venom Snake. After the hospital attack, Skullface was able to corral Mantis and thus the Man on Fire to his cause based on their hatred for Big Boss. He also used Volgan as an eraser of sorts, using him to burn down some of the villages and encampments where Skullface tested his vocal cord parasites. Snake will defeat him in this battle coming up, but Skullface will beckon him once again to kill Venom Snake at the end of this chapter. Instead, Mantis, Man on Fire's puppeteer, found a better vessel for revenge in the form of Eli, aka Young Liquid. Mantis left the Man on Fire's body in Sahelanthropus's hangar, not having any use for it. The Russians later would recover his body, and a late-game mission will have Snake go and retrieve the corpse. In that mission, Volgan will reanimate, not as the Man on Fire, but in a moment of clairvoyance, appears to realize that Venom Snake isn't the real big boss, and just dies right there. Vulcan would still be, br- be brought back to Mother Base, and Ocelot would watch over the body of his former commanding officer. You can perhaps headcanon that Ocelot developed some technology based off of Vulcan, including the railguns for both Rex and Fortune, as well as the bullet deflector technology he reveals at the end of Metal Gear Solid 2. And acquiring the Man on Fire means you can develop the fiery unicorn suit for D-Horse. The Man on Fire is in many ways a reflection of Venom Snake, a vessel for rage that will be consumed by its own fires. He's already a demon, a process Venom Snake and arguably Big Boss are currently undergoing during the events of the game. But he's a phantom in his own right, the ghost of Vogan, and is seeking vengeance to assuage his pain. He's on his own revenge arc, not unlike literally every other character in this game. <laughs> I was just thinking about it. I like that because uh, he's, you know, as far as the prologue is good, you could be con- you could be con- um, forgiven for thinking that he was the final boss of the entire game based on the opening mission. And mm-hmm. said about uh, halfway through ish, he's taken out. He's just kind of gone. <laughs> and I think that's a good, that's a clever little bait and switch because mm-hmm. you would. Not, not that this this series is not immune to it. The prequelitis of being like, here's here's character, you know, it's character, right, right. But I think I like that they. You would never assume that Mantis and Vulcan would interact, and you kind of think like, oh, that's like a fun Metal Gear Solid One callback, and then Liquid shows up, and you're like, oh, that's Liquid Snake. Never mind. So it, it's like the game, quite literally, like Mantis does, just kind of tosses him aside, and I like that because I like. I mean, it's nice to see Volgan, but he's not like a existential threat in the in the Metal Gear universe. He's just like some dickhead with the lightning powers. Um, and I like that the series is sort of like, we're done with this. It's almost like throwing away the Cold War stuff at, at a certain point. Oh, that's great. I love that analysis. Because it's just like, yeah, th- this, this is done with now. Now it's time for, I mean, now, now we, we, we're doing the real shit now. Here's Liquid Snake. <laughs> Let's get all the band together and, and do the... Uh, actually the important terrifying i don't know all the little hints to solid snake era stuff i think that hints uh, foreshadowing is is done really well i feel like I, I enjoy it personally speaking of it's been some time since we discussed psycho mantis actually over 60 episodes ago episode four our episode on metal gear solid from 1998 it's not over yet snake 
His Phantom appeared in Metal Gear Solid 4 as well, the power behind Screaming Mantis, who was in turn the power behind the Beauty and the Beast Corps. He's never actually officially named as Mantis in this game, or explicitly tied to his character in Metal Gear Solid 1 besides visuals like his mask. He is referred to as Mantis in official guides and the game soundtrack, however. In this game, he goes by Tratij Rebinok, which translates to the ch- third child or third boy. That name, coupled with his piloting of Sahelanthropus, should be giving Neon Genesis Evangelion vibes to everyone listening. In this game, Mantis has long messy hair, a gas mask, and a black straitjacket on that's clearly made for an adult with overly long sleeves. As we've mentioned before, the most noticeable part of Mantis's design is how he reflects whoever he is in service to at any given moment. When it's Skullface, he has a Kato mask on his gas mask. When it's Venom Snake, there's a horn on it. When it's Vulgan, there's fire at the tips of his sleeves. When it's Eli, he has a red beret on his shoulder. And like I just mentioned, when he mercy kills Shibani, um, Shibani's necklace can be seen around his neck. Quick summary of Mantis's early history, which is significantly changed from what we learned in Metal Gear Solid 1. Or if not retcon, at least we are led to believe that a lot of his Foxhound experience may have been fabricated. Either way, as a young boy with strange abilities, he was studied and experimented on, not unlike the corpse of Volgan. On February 26, 1984, the same day as B's awakening, he was being transported by a plane from Czechoslovakia, already in his gas mask full-time to prevent people's thoughts from entering his own mind. That plane flew over the hospital in Cyprus, and the burning rage within Big Boss and Venom caused Mantis to overload, causing the plane he was in to crash. Mantis was the only survivor. The kid was taken to a lab where he was given the name Third Child. This lab is also where Volgan's body was, which basically catches us, catches us up given the rest coincides with Man on Fire's history. His telekinesis powers are extremely leveled up in this game, which allows him to control Sahelanthropus, rendering Huey's AI controls irrelevant. Mantis will have a part to play following the death of Skullface and Sahelanthropus, which we will detail in a later episode, and goes on to have a strong relationship with Eli, foreshadowing their eventual team-up for Shadow Moses. I'm trying to think of what the... Oh, yeah. I was going to say, he's basically, like, Akira-level powerful in this game. Like, it's it's almost comical compared to the little freak who, like, read, read your memory card and danced around in Metal Gear Solid 1. Um, I wonder if, if the, you know, the idea is supposed to be... That. That's that's a common trope, that, that children can't control... Their, if powerful children can't control their power, ETC, ETC, but... It is a little hard to sort of like, it's a little hard to, to reconcile this version of this character with one who gets completely owned by the sorrow and MGS4 just gets wiped out. Um, but I don't know. I love the, I love, like you mentioned the, uh, visual design, like the, the cue to who is controlling him. It took me a little bit to figure that out. I didn't quite understand what was going on originally, but it's a nice little subtle. It's a l- little bit of subtle storytelling, which is rare for this series. The game never tells you it or really yeah. highlights it. Sometimes even that symbol, like Shibani's necklace, you have to like look for. It's not like here it is. Here's a clear shot of it, kind of thing. Which is nice. That's actually the thing. The the thing I I would say that's the that's the single part of MGSV's presentation that is most different from the rest of the series is that little the subtle visual storytelling that actually does show up, and I, I appreciate it. I it's nice. 
it's nice to have things to look for again if you're ever watching these cutscenes, which is not something that you can always say. I mean, we talked before, MGS3's cutscenes are enjoyable to watch because they're mo-capped and cool and, like, really kinetic and stuff's happening. But a lot of the ones in 2, particularly, like, there's nothing to watch them for again. Mm-hmm. Other than just ocelot line deliveries, which are, you know, they're great. But I appreciate that. It's good It's good storytelling. Speaking of ocelot, it's, we also just want to flag that a half of Hoxhound, um, the original unit from the first Metal Gear Solid, um, have been assembled for this game because we have Mantis, Liquid, and Ocelot all making appearances here. And and we've said before, you can kind of assume this time period when Big Boss is off doing his own thing is very likely when he would have come across like Sniper Wolf. He would have been solid in. Um, you have to imagine. He may, You have to imagine it because it's... Uh, Gray Fox is out there right now. Like, there's other stuff happening with Big Boss. There's going to be something I think we're going to talk about when we get to Venom Snake's ending and the Outer mm-hmm. Heaven thing mm-hmm. is which, which Big Boss did uh, Sniper Wolf and even Vulcan Raven know because canonically Kojima has placed Vulcan Raven at the 1995 Outer Heaven Uprising. He just didn't take part, um, but he was like working with Big Boss in some capacity or something like that. So. Um, but I think it's interesting either way um, how that works. Because I think there's also a lot of people who have the theory that Venom Snake assembled half of Foxhound here, and then perhaps whatever Big Boss is doing with this nation building, he found the other members of Big or who would go on to become Foxhound. Yeah, that's what I was saying. That would be fun. Although Deco Octopus, who found he just shows up. Hey, what's up? He was just there the whole time. He was Big Boss. <laughs> so let's actually talk about the boss fight now, um, where you can. So you start out in the hospital, and as Kaz says, get the fuck out of there. <laughs> um, and then you get out and you start fighting the man on fire out in that kind of open industrial yard that we mentioned. If you try to escape, uh, like go back through the tunnel in which you enter this area, the man on fire will blast the tunnel shut, um, which is a nice little bit of world building. He won't necessarily do it if you don't make for it, but I like that he actually does that. So traditional firearms are not effective on him, which is honestly not unlike Metal Gear Solid 3, where when you face him in that little wrestling pit, um, you can't shoot him from the front. That's why you have to CQC him and either shoot him in the back or use other techniques. And again, like Metal Gear Solid 3, you need to hit him with water. Um, That's why I called out all the water towers, pumps that are around the environment. Um, You can use them to either douse him in water or hit him with a little spray. And then one of the weapons you can develop at Mother Base is the water gun, which is literally a plastic cheap water gun that doesn't shoot very far, but you can literally bombard him with it. um, And that also helps put out his fire. He hates it. It's one of my favorite. He reacts to it like a cat would. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Um, And then what happens is once you like put enough water on the man on fire, um, the Mantis will briefly reappear and will try to revive him, um, which will basically restart the boss fight if he just gets the man on fire on fire again. So when Mantis shows up, you you can shoo him off like just by shooting at him so he keeps having to disappear and not able to uh, reinvigorate the man on fire. Um, and then you can use that to uh, have an opening to call in a helicopter and exfiltrate. Or if you can actually take out the take out floating mantis boy by calling in a supply drop if you call it on like where the man on fire's marker is on the map the supply drop that you call in will drop on mantis's head knock him out and then you actually win the boss fight um at which point you can try to extract uh volgan although that doesn't actually work 
um, he, he'll say they say he'll cut his cords on his way of being out. So um, it's a fun boss fight. There's a lot of ways to approach it. What I like to do is there's a giant water tower, like not far from the factory entrance. Um, if you kind of like plant some C4 by it, and then when Volgan's close enough and blow, um, the entire water tower will douse man on fire and take him out in full. And then you can either shoo off or nail Mantis for that bonus objective, and that'll get you through it. But I also like just kind of going to work with him on the water gun and blowing up some of the smaller water tanks and having a little fun running around and blowing shit up. Yep, classic Metal Gear fight. He's he's blowing shit up, but yeah. It's it's a fun gimmick, but I really like it. Um, it's just, it, it's different. I'm glad that they found something new to do other than just machine gun fire. Well, yeah, there's not a lot of fights in this game that feel like the old, like, damage, like, almost, not, I don't want to say they're like a Dark Souls fight, but like the uh, avoid damage, avoid damage, avoid damage attack Metal Gear fight. Pattern recognition, like yeah. stuff, yeah. Yeah, the, that's that's a classic Metal Gear. That's like the Metal Gear 1 fight style. And, uh, yeah, it's nice to get it. it. It feels, I don't know, I like like I, said, I like the Skulls, but it, they don't have, like, the, they don't feel, they don't have that feel of, like, a distinct character that you are fighting. And this does, you know, even though it is literally a phantom of a, a former boss fight. Yeah, but they, like you said, the Skulls are, like, just heavies. Like, they're, like, yeah. mid um, I mean, they are supposed to be bosses, but they have the feeling more of heavies, as in they don't have distinct things you can... There's all the mini-bosses. They're not bosses. Right, yeah. And it's nice to get one. Although there is another one. Like, Silanthropus is a great one. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of it, right? Like, Yeah, a quiet, but the sniper battle yeah. has a different cadence than, like... Yeah, that, that's, that's a different fight, yeah. Snake returns to Mother Base afterwards with Shibani's necklace to hand to the other child soldiers as a memory for their fallen comrade. Kaz and Snake are left to puzzle out the rest. Skullface is in Africa and appears to be running Cypher at this point, but the voices, the headphones, the fucked up bodies, they still don't have answers. That will be our next Metal Gear Solid B episode. mission complete for this episode our frequency is podcast sans frontiers at gmail.com and at pod sans front on twitter and instagram you can support podcast sans frontiers at patreon.com slash my bro my cat my pod for my lord of the rings podcast my brother my captain my podcast you can also find me covering a song of ice and fire and house of the dragon over at Nauticast aso iaf which i've been manu also known as the nuclear bomb I have been Brian. It is no nation we inhabit, but a language. Yeah. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. 
Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the sins never die, can't wash this blood from our hands.